Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India. And we are your theory doctors. Hello, Hannah. Hello. How are you this morning? Not bad. It's not raining today. No, it's quite sunny and we're recording early in the morning, which we don't usually do. No. Um, it is Saturday, the same day you are listening. Um, we are recording at 9.30. It's 9.57. And what's the date today? The date is the 26th of October, 2019. And I think this might be the first time we are recording the same day the podcasters do. I know, unless maybe very, very early on. No, I think this is the yeah. first time. We've got getting busier and busier and trying to work, having to work more and more quickly. I think also, so so should we tell, should for like full disclosure, what happened to us yesterday? I think we should. So we we decided we had planned to uh, to record yesterday very quickly in between uh, activities. So you rushed home from St Andrews and came right over to my house, and we set up the new fancy equipment. And we sat down, and we had zero ideas for an episode. Yeah, that's never happened before. That we sort of we just spoke about lots and lots of ideas and all of the strands seemed to sort of go into nothing. I think there was a time pressure because you had to be somewhere else afterwards. Yeah. And that didn't help. But we've sort of never managed to f- sort of completely fail to come up with anything. I know. Yeah. I know. It's, it's, and I, I guess the moral of the story, because, because we hadn't actually had a conversation in a few weeks, maybe three or four weeks even, that because we actually hadn't sat down and, and had a conversation at all, the kind of origin myth of the podcast is is probably closer to true than we think, which is that it's genuinely just, it comes out of us having weird conversations. Yeah, I, I think the fact that there's been nothing in the news that isn't the B word. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, the public discourse in the UK has shrunk. Yeah. V- very much and and i mean this isn't our, our focus today but public discourse about discourse about brexit has really shrunk as yeah, well yeah, you yeah. Know, it's it, it's sort of constantly talking about nothing else but nothing's happening with brexit either so it's yeah uh news is sort of uh empty anyway um we are not talking about brexit today and we finally landed on a topic yes. that is is really kind of i think pure state of the theory this is sort of a, a classic topic for us. Pure state of the theory. Classic topic. Uh, yes. Um, so today we are talking about the Booker Prize. Yeah. And uh, the Nobel Prize. Prizes generally. Um, you will have seen that that both the Booker uh, and the Nobel has recently awarded its uh, this year's winners. Um, we are going to be focusing more on literary prizes, but but we will be talking about other, other kinds of uh, prizes as well. And uh, the thing that made us want to explore this topic uh, was the fact that Margaret Atwood and Bernadine Evaristo were jointly awarded the Booker. Uh, the judges went against the express wishes of the um, of the the prize giving authorities uh, in order to award the the these two women. And when you heard the story, what did you think? The first the first thing I thought of was, oh, it's like moonlight. Because a couple of years ago, Moonlight was awarded uh, the Academy Award for Best Picture. 
Um, and when everyone will know this, and we didn't talk about it on the podcast, but we could have, um, I think maybe we even discussed possibly doing it, that uh, when the Best Picture Prize was announced, the incorrect card was given to the presenters, and the presenters read the card from the previous award, and incorrectly announced that La La Land, an extremely white movie, had won the award for Best Picture. Oh, oh, I haven't seen it, but a white movie about the birth of jazz, yes. I think, right? Yes, yes. It's, it is. It's astonishing in its in its Columbusing. I mean, it's a, you know, people loved it. It's entertaining. It, it kind of bends genre a little bit. So as a, a kind of piece of filmmaking, you know, it is what it is. As a, a an interesting, engaging story about jazz, it's deeply problematic. And Moonlight is i mean it was an instant kind of it's, it's astonishing it's, yeah it's, it's an, an astonishing, astonishing film and it's one of the most important films mm. that has made it into into the mainstream i mean it wasn't a mainstream film but it made it into the mainstream um by a kind of series of accidents happy accidents and i guess it's that mainstreamness that that i'm particularly interested in so um my my thoughts about this go back to uh, a few years ago when Bob Dylan was announced as uh, the winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature that year. And my timeline was full of, on the one hand, a lot of people, including myself, thinking this was an incredible thing and uh, spent a day having lots of Facebook conversations with con- which consisted entirely of sharing Bob Dylan lyrics. Um, and there was another group of people who felt upset that their favorite author hadn't won and felt upset that the Nobel authorities were bending the definition of literature uh, beyond what they thought was desirable. And it, it occurred to me that there is much more of an overlap between the kind of people who are critical of awards generally as problematic and capitalist and uh, uncritical and unadventurous and all of those things on the one hand, and also upset when their favorite author, often for reasons of diversity or, or whatever, don't get the award that they think they should deserve. And that overlap really confuses me because if you are genuinely critical and dismissive of awards as a capitalist institution, then you should have no investment left in them to be upset when your favorite author doesn't win. And I am interested in the ways in which there is a kind of disjunction between someone who both is dismissive of awards as as rubbish but also invested in awards as a way to spread privilege um and i don't see how you can be both but clearly so many people are yeah i mean it it, it kind of my f- sort of initial thoughts about it which we were talking about is it has to do with this the the kind of inherent 
uh, tensions within kind of conceptualizing representation and how critical theory and people who kind of are inspired by critical theory or thinking in critical theory terms deal with representation as something that does two opposing things at the same time because of capitalism and representation is a I use it's it's one of these kind of vague uh jargony words uh but it kind of has two meanings for for people who do critical theory and also for people who work in more kind of mainstream or management corporate type diversity uh agendas and the first is representation in in positions of power so the idea that more women in boardrooms, uh, more people of color in boardrooms, more women of color in boardrooms, um, making decisions. Leaning in. Leaning in, yep. And and that, that type of representation will trickle down, which is interesting. Um, and of course, more critical people think, well, no representation, needs, it needs to be throughout the institution and it needs to be you know complete, that kind of thing, without cr- critiquing the institution itself often. Um, because normally we're talking about using representation as a way of facilitating capitalism or reviving capitalism. Um, the other form of representation is the cultural representation side of things where identities are represented in cultural represent forms of cultural representation in a way that is diverse, in a way that is, um, multi-layered, um, across the spectrum of genres and types of media to create a picture of identities that is somewhat accurate or representative of the wide variety of experiences of people who actually live as those identities being represented. Um, Very famously, kind of in in recent years, TV sitcoms in the United States have have revived a... um, diverse representation agenda used to be in the, the kind of 80s early 90s there there was a real emphasis on sitcoms around black families and um other non-white families that died in the 90s uh the total whiteness of tv shows like friends seinfeld etc um and then there's been a kind of revival so shows like blackish fresh off the boat um modern family have all kind of attempted to revive this this form of representation. And what I feel like with awards, both are happening at the same time. There's a, it's a, uh, an intersection of representing people in positions of power, the winners of an award and representations of identities because of the creation of cultural production. And the book itself is attached of course, to the writer winning. So it's, it's both the writer and the book itself that win the award. And so it's a it's a a deeply painful and personal experience for people, even if you are critical of the award itself, because it's it pinpoints a moment of representation that feels significant in terms of kind of actual effects it might have on your community, on you, on um, uh, a general kind of white population's understanding or ability to kind of think about your experience. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned trickle-down. It is that trickle-down thing at work, right? Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. And I should preface this by saying, even though it is part of my job to talk about and write about books, my understanding of the economics of the publishing industry is hazy at best. But I would submit that anyone who is anywhere close 
to the possibility of winning a Booker or, or a Nobel is probably relatively privileged already. Their access to, to the publishing industry is not tenuous if their book is in the running to win win a major major literary prize. So anyone who could theoretically win the booker isn't in need of the spreading of privilege that that we are or some people are attributing to the the prize giving ceremony. So what is happening here then is a belief in trickle down, right? So if it is important, which I think it is for queer authors, authors of colour, women authors to win prizes. It is important not least because of what it means for other less privileged queer people of colour, women authors, who might possibly benefit from a kind of trickle-down privilege where, you know, if you... If a Bernadine Everista wins the Booker or if a Marlon James wins the Booker, then the the increase in sales of authors of colour might possibly trickle down to less familiar names in terms of authors of colour. That that's the logic of the argument, isn't it? I think so, yeah. And and then and then also the representation so that when you go into a mainstream bookstore and you see a table of buy one, get one half off you're more likely to have a selection of authors that aren't predominantly white straight men or white straight women. And certainly in the, and obviously we're all, we're talking about Anglophone and translated literature here. The booker is, is Anglophone literature and um, the Nobel is not, um, but in the U S the Pulitzer and the national book award are all, you know, they're all English language. So it's important that we kind of mention that. Um, But I guess the idea is also that you, if you are a, if you're a white person going in to a bookstore and you are confronted with, with a far more representative selection of books on that front table in, in full view, then perhaps you will expand your horizons by reading books written by uh, Nigerian women or um, South Asian diasporic writers from around the Commonwealth, or um, Black South African men, or Black men from the Caribbean who identify as queer, you know, that you you will branch out in a way that you feel comfortable doing because the books have been given a stamp of approval by an institution that you trust or know. And, and, and then to what extent does that stamp of approval translate or transmit across to books by less familiar authors i mean i have no data it would be interesting to do surveys of of people's book buying practices um in different i mean you could actually you could use amazon data actually it's it's definitely doable now um that's not the kind of research we do but it's possible and i i am not sure but the historical, the way of thinking historically about it is we now have a history of excellent literature, a field of literature written by women of color in the United States, African-American women, black women. And that is, 
um, you know, it's 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 now considered philosophy. It's considered black feminist philosophy. Are we less racist? Are white people less racist because of classic novels like Beloved and The Bluest Eye and The Color Purple? That's a fascinating question. It goes back to our previous episode on satire, right? What is effective satire? Yeah. What is the point of fiction? Is the point of uh, a genre or a canon of fiction about race relations to reduce racism in society? Does, Does reading Toni Morrison make you less racist? It might make me personally more conscious of the experience of the black women that I meet and a, and a bit less horrible, but it certainly doesn't, I don't think it tackles structural racism in the same way as trade union organizing or. And, and maybe know. that, I mean, that's, that's, yeah. That's not its job, as it were. Yeah, maybe its job is to just make me a less horrible person if I read the Because I was maybe 13 when I read The Bluest Eye. Mm. I read it, uh, a teacher handed it to me and said, here, you'll, you should read this. You will probably enjoy it. And Toni Morrison is, you know, a, a, f- a founding mother of, of women's literature and black women's literature. And it did have, it had an effect. But I'm still a kind of racist white lady, you know, like... I try my best, but I mean, this is this is sort of um, the the Marxist in us coming out, right? That yeah, you ideas are not going to be changed unless the economic structures of society are changed, and whether or not the role of fiction is to encourage change in society, the the publishing industry that fiction is part of is a capitalist institution and is interested in sales and profits and and the any kind of diversity within those capitalist institutions might be desirable on its own terms in the way that having more CEOs of color or more university vice chancellors of color might be desirable in its own terms it will not be on its own a revolutionary act that reduces racism within those institutions let alone outside yeah and in fact i mean sometimes and i think some people do argue this that without fundamentally changing the institutions you actually shore up capitalism you give it a kind of a boost of adrenaline for a while um, because you are able to hide behind a kind of a singular person in a singular position of power and say, oh, we're we're not misogynist anymore. We're not racist anymore. We've got women, right? It was a really big deal when um, there were suddenly two women vice chancellors at Oxford and St. Andrews, but they literally traded jobs. They had both been in the opposite position and they traded jobs. But it was it was this kind of win for feminism, even though kind of on a day-to-day basis, our lives haven't changed. You know, we get we get paid the same amount of money, we do the same work. We'll probably do a little bit more work than we did five years ago. And the system itself has 
not changed terribly much. And in insofar as the desirability of that kind of diversity is is made in terms of a discourse, in terms of an argument, it explicitly or not relies on a similar kind of trickle down, right? That the the argument is that the more women there are in positions of power, the the easier it'll be for other women to be promoted. You know, you can look at a at at a female VC in a university and go, you know, I'll I'll get there one day. Mm-hmm. And the the fact that there are women occupying positions of power along the way will make it easier for you to make that journey is the argument which of course is not the case because that's not how capitalist institutions work so why do we have by we i mean you know friends of ours ourselves critical thinking academics in the humanities who are aware of all of these things why do we still have a residue of emotional investment in who wins the book or who wins the Nobel. Yeah, and specifically, I guess, in this case, why, for the first time that two authors are sharing the Booker Prize, why it is that the first black woman has to share it with a white woman. Yeah, and and the way that sharing works, right? Like, because if it is, I mean... In terms of symbolic representation and the way it translates into increased sales, Bernadine Evaristo's book is not going to sell any less because she shared the prize with Atwood, I don't think. No. If anything, it might even sell a bit more. Mm-hmm. But that's... Well, and it's definitely generated... It's generated interest and it's also generated critique. Yeah. So, of course, if you and I are going to go purchase purchase one of the two Booker books, chances are it's going to be hers. Yeah. Um, But there is still a... There is is still something problematic, not just about the fact that you said, you know, the first time a black woman wins a Booker, she has to share it with a white woman. But in terms of the differing positions of privilege of the two authors, Mm -hmm. uh, Margaret Atwood bringing her own... Brand. Much longer career of uh, as as a prolific, popular, critically acclaimed, important feminist author. Um, Importantly, she does not identify as a feminist. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking of this while reading reading media coverage of the of the the news of the fact that these these two authors are these two women are sharing the prize, mm-hmm. and it was. So one of the questions that Bernadine Evaristo got asked in in the aftermath, immediate aftermath of winning, was what is your relationship with The Handmaid's Tale? Which is not a question she would have asked if Atwood hadn't also won the prize. Mm-hmm. So is there a kind of whitewashing of feminism in the way that we now contextualize Evaristo's presence as an author that we are we are con- we are contextualizing her not in terms of people like Toni Morrison or Audre Lord who are the people she named in her response to this question as mm-hmm. as people who who were formative for her but we the media we the readership we the world 
are contextualizing her in terms of a lineage of white feminism as personified by Margaret Atwood. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I always find it I always find it it adds a layer because Margaret Atwood herself doesn't she says and has said in the past that she does not like feminism as an organizing principle which I find fascinating. Um and it's definitely yeah so whiteness becomes the baseline. And at the time in the 70s and 80s there was a it was far more I think active and there was far more kind of debate and conversation and there was a whole kind of there was activity in feminist literature that was directly challenging whiteness and I wasn't alive then and I would be really curious actually to speak to white women about their relationships to to Toni Morrison and Audre Lorde and Alice Walker because I feel like we uh, with the passage of time we have we have whitened it more and separated out the the distinctions between black feminism and feminism as opposed to referring to feminism and white feminism which is probably how I'd prefer to think about it in the sense that most of the concepts that we continue to use were were given to us by black women thinkers. Yeah, I mean I'm fully prepared to believe this was, you know, misspeaking and unintentional as it were but it did sort of stick out to me that atwood was quoted again in the immediate aftermath in the immediate aftermath of winning she was quoted as saying at least we both have curly hair which just seems a really thoughtless borderline stupid comment and i would have expected more cleverness from her yeah or grace grace yeah. like in a sense of like which is a gendered term of course yeah. but th- the the like when when marlon james won the booker a few years ago in 2015 jamaican authors and black authors from around the kind of anglophone speaking world all kind of rallied around and there was kind of there was there was it felt like there was a lot of informed discourse from all these people who'd read the book and were all kind of working the community came together um and why would i mean has she spoken about having read the book like has she read nothing that i've seen and because the because Bernadine Evaristo's response after she said, you know, the formative literature for me was black women's literature. And then eventually I got around to reading The Handmaid's Tale. And and she praises it as an important work of feminist literature. Yeah. And 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 you know, not to interrupt, but it is, right? Whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. Atwood's own personal views about feminism may or may not be. I don't think we should underestimate the importance of The Handmaid's Tale as a as an iconic work that has not that has um inspired not just other works of feminist literature and other other uh critical works of feminist thinking but has also inspired actual protest right like yep. people people sort of using uh visual keys clothes and so on from the world of handmade tale in actual protest so it's important to underscore all of that right yes of course 
Yeah, we've both read it. Yeah. You know, it's it's a book that we remember. Yeah. And I enjoyed. Mm. I in as a side note, I enjoy other Atwood more. Um, but mm. you know, it, it is a, a it's a core text, isn't it? Yeah. What Atwood could have done is indicated that she'd read and we don't know, you know, she may very well have read the long list and the short list and be familiar with all the other authors on the list. You'd think that she would then, you know, I would hope, given how important her books are to so many people and given given how clever they are, that she would say something about this younger woman author and say something about the book itself. I don't know. I mean, is that too much to, to ask? Is it just because... I would have liked to have seen that. Well, that's a different form of spreading privilege that isn't isn't just trickle down, right? It's yeah. It's it's sort of um, solid a, a politics of solidarity. Yeah. That that cuts across um, uh, generations and class and race. Uh, class codified slightly differently in terms of authorial privilege, but. I wonder, and, and I mean, if this is a problem within feminism, it's it's much more of a problem in terms of the way society thinks of feminism, feminism in scare quotes. Uh, I don't know if another mo- another group of movements, if you like, that is as clearly riven along generational lines. You know, we talk about. I, I always joke with my students: Is there another another body of activist thought that comes in waves? It seems feminism is the only one that comes in waves. And within that discourse is is built in the idea of conflict between generations of feminists. And that conflict is sometimes coded through through race, Mm -hmm. sometimes coded through class, sometimes coded through uh, trans identity, you know, the turf, turf generation of feminism. I'm using scare quotes again. And... I wonder to what extent this is, as say, a problem within various strands of feminism, or to what extent is it a problem in terms of a wider hegemonic culture deliberately undermining feminism by constructing it as a conflicted, contested, generational movement where examples of cross-generational solidarity of the, of the kind you were just talking about aren't given prominence. Yeah. I don't know. And, and how much can we extrapolate based on One Margaret Guardian, Atwood? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and media representations of Margaret Atwood. Yeah. Um, but all of these caveats come back to the central question, which is given our awareness of all of these caveats, why do we still care? And the fact that we, I mean, you know, you and I still care enough to, turn this into a podcast episode, right? Like, why why is, why is, do awards still matter given the, the main, if not only, effect they have is increased sales of books of that particular author? Why, why does it still... Yeah, and it is a bit of a, it's a competition between the publishing houses, right? It's a, ultimately it's a, who publish, and when you read a list of, of, shortlist and winners they're they're always accompanied by the publisher 
which is, and it is a kind of battle of the big publishing houses more than it is a battle of the authors. And that makes sense. And, and underscores the capitalist nature of all of this. Yeah. That the, that ultimately it's about who, which house facilitates the best writing and the most successful writing, which aren't necessarily the same thing. In a slightly different context, um, the the way in which prizes and and particular decisions by by prize awarding committees get get filtered through capitalism, patriarchy, nationalism, the the fact that the Nobel Prize for Economics, which was uh, won recently by three. Uh, economists, Obijit Banerjee, Esther Dufflo, and Michael Kramer. Um, I certainly am not uh, qualified to judge the merits or otherwise of their work. Um, I will say in passing, we'll, we'll, we'll put a, a few links in the, in the description, that a lot of left economists have, have criticized the, the fundamental principles of, of their work. Um, but what is what is fascinating to me is how so Obijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo are married, uh, and large sections of the media in India, Obijit Banerjee is an Indian-born American citizen. Uh, a, a lot of the the media in India reported it as Indian-born economist and wife wins the prize, and this sort of hideous obscene fusing of patriarchy and nationalism where the man gets credit not just for being a man but for where he was born uh and the liberal left in india jumps on this bandwagon and praises this particular decision because obhijit banerjee is on record as saying some mildly critical things about about the current modi government uh, and because the left in India is so beleaguered, you know, any any validation that, that the left gets, it sort of embraces. And the fact that the the immediate aftermath of winning the prize was was um, Obhijit Banerjee going to meet Modi and having a sort of fawning over mutually ad- admiring session uh, was sort of lost in in the blizzard of posts about how great it is that another Indian economist, Amit Sen won it a few years ago, another Indian economist wins 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 the Nobel. And it just we should be better. All <laughs> of us we should we should be more critical. We should be more suspicious of awards and what they mean and why they are given and any diversity that they might help spread is superficial at best and always compromised by a, a wider set of ideologies that are deeply problematic, right? Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because The Guardian has a, every year around the Booker time, they have a... a like a vote and a, a reader submission thing where they they have their own and they call it anything but the booker. And 
readers are invited to submit the best books that they read over the year and their favorite books. And then um, people are kind of invited to, to read collectively. And then the, and then at the end they, they award somebody the anything but the book or a prize based on the list of books provided by readers. And the, there's other kind of similar popular choice awards. And I think we were talking before, I think the most, the most famous one that I know of is the the Hugo Award, which is given for science fiction and fantasy. And it's a really old award. It's been around for like half a century, something like that. And the Hugo Awards are chosen by readers, they're like voted upon. And the the last few years, around the time, you know, concurrent with things like Gamergate and the use of algorithms and popular activities online to downrate um, trailers for, you know, mediocre mainstream movies that star women in a remake, right? The It's around the same time in the last kind of decade. And there's kind of been movements to undermine the, the popular votes where people... Uh, there's kind of a collection of people voting in favor of books, either where the author is so-called diverse in some way or the, and, or, and usually, and the book itself does a kind of radical political thing, usually with identity and often around a combination of disability, gender, and sexuality. And a lot of the books that have been nominated for the Hugo Awards actively use science fiction as a genre or fantasy as a genre to mobilize progressive liberal ideas around identity. And there's been this, this also this backlash and science fiction is unique in the sense that it speaks across such a broad range of geeks and nerds that you have extremely kind of right wing, uh, white supremacist supporters of science fiction as a, as a kind of white man's pure genre and a kind of nerddom or geekdom around uh, video gaming and um, and science fiction as being for them, as well as science fiction as, as a, a way of imagining a future in which uh, gender and race and sexuality and disability are reimagined and uh, redevised. We talked with Katie Muth for a long time about um, Octavia Butler and and her role in, in being a black woman science fiction writer. So as a genre, it's distinctive and unique, um, but it also raises questions about should, sh if we're going to reimagine awards, and people do, do you trust the popular vote or do you completely kind of destroy the concept of an award entirely? Yeah, so so for me, it it... it I think has to be the latter because if you if you accept that capitalism is and and economic relations in the ultimate sense are determinant of the choices we make in in society then the central pillar on which awards are at least apparently implicitly based is the idea that it is possible to objectively judge literary excellence. 
And I'm not sure it is. In fact, I, I think it isn't mm-hmm. because our judgments are based on the socioeconomic conditions within which we live. So if we are going to be honest about it, then the the awards system would have to say, would have to make room for the fact that the, the judgments we are making are contingent, which would... S- undermine the system so severely that i'm not sure it's tenable anymore if you if you don't accept the premise that book x is inherently uh and sort of absolutely better than book y is the world system really tenable after that i mean no But then would you expand that into things like grant funding? Because one of the things that comes with the booker is money. Yeah. And for an author who might have less or fewer available funds, Mm. that award is a salary for a while in order to write the next book, which I think is the, the idea behind a cash prize. Yeah. And especially the idea behind cash prizes for awards that are, uh, narrower in scope so thinking about awards for women there are writers prizes that are very prestigious for women authors only for example um the the idea is that you give you inject money so that they can then continue to do their work which is the premise of our grant funding like and if you think about the the kind of the more analogous ones like the the macarthur genius awards they're essentially a prize for a person in the work they've done and investing in the potential, in their potential to think and create. It's not really any different. No. No. Because, um, I mean, no. recently, the, the, um, one of the funding bodies here in the UK called the Leverhulme Trust, they've you know, funded some really important and innovative work quite a lot of it, in fact, over the time that they've existed. They recently awarded what they call the Philip Leverhulme Prizes. And all over Twitter, you know, and, and it's a wonderful achievement for our colleagues who win these. And, you know, we see the people who win them and it's like, great, yes, keep going, keep doing it. Especially when you see um, women and scholars of color and women of color scholars getting these awards. You know, it's, it's wonderful. But it is a bit like the prizes facilitate that unequal hierarchy within the institution when it's like every scholar kind of deserves to have 5000 pounds every year to go and do some work and and that's the that's the the absolute limit point of this trickle down theory right because it's it's effectively not trickle down it is compete for and and one of you or a limited number of you will get it yeah but all of you will be jumping through hoops and modifying your behavior and self-policing and self-regulating in terms of producing not just excellent research, not just excellent literature, but excellence as defined by funding bodies and, and, and award committees in order that one of you might get it. Yeah. And then the, the, the specter, the, the symbol of the fact that one of you has got it will encourage you to carry on self-policing and self-regulating in order to produce the kind of work that might be recognized next time around. Yeah. It's grim. 
this wasn't going to be a grim episode, but it has become <laughs> grim. Um, I don't think we are ever going to do anything that isn't grim. No. Let us know if you agree with our grimness. Let us know if you disagree. Um, let us know if you've won a prize recently and tell us how to. And congratulations. Yes. Sincerely. Yes. Congratulations. Sh- sh- spread your magic. Yeah. Um, thanks for listening. And uh, we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richaudhvi. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our show is on Facebook at State of the Theory Podcast and on Twitter at Theory Doctors. Our music is provided by the Agrarians and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be? Where would we be?